Good morning, good evening, or good night. My name is Angelica Dickerson, and you're listening to the In the Interim podcast. I wanted to start off this podcast by talking about my year, my 2020, which has been as hectic and strange as everyone else's. So I made a list. It's just four or five things. I wrote it down, even though I'm not going to forget any of these things, uh, just to be sure that I could give an accurate picture of this year. So first thing, both of my parents were diagnosed with cancer. My my dad in February, and then my mom in the past month or two. And I'll, I'll be honest, I've cried and I've laughed intermittently <laughs> about this circumstance. Um, but I mean, God has been so good to both of them. With my dad, his sickness was caught so early that they were able to really um, get in there and, and, you know, take out his prostate. And it was wonderful. He's on radiation. He's doing radiation. He's doing well. And then my mom is scheduled to get her thyroid taken out um, next year. So in the next week or two, both of my parents being sick made me confront their mortality in a way that I probably hadn't wanted to do, but that we all must do in order to become adults. And if I'm honest, I still am not entirely comfortable with the idea of living on this earth without my parents. But it's been such a journey in learning how to love them well this year, how to speak to them truthfully and honestly and communicate my love in ways that they can understand and appreciate. It's been wonderful. And meanwhile, I've written more in this year than I have in the past three years combined. And all for pleasure. Like, when I was at school, obviously, I wrote thousands of words that needed to be written and needed to be turned in, and I even enjoyed writing some of them. But this year, it was for me. And I didn't get a grade. I didn't always get applause. I didn't always put it out there for people to see and read. But there's something so edifying about creating constantly and it's just for the sole joy of making something exist that didn't exist before no one and nothing can take that feeling away from you so that's another thing that happened this year i quit my job at starbucks in uh may which was something that i had been building up to for a while but i didn't want to do it until i felt like i wasn't running away from it like i wanted to feel like i really conquered my barista role and I wasn't quitting for any other reason but that it was time to move on and do something else and it ended up coinciding with you know the coronavirus and me not being able to be in a position around a lot of people and and therefore putting the people I live with my parents uh their health in danger so it kind of worked out um and that was what pushed me to make that that final leap And then I guess the last thing is I created in the interim to share my truth and to share my writing, which was another thing that I had been building up to for a while. And it's been, it's been an illuminating process. 
and I've loved hearing people's feedback and things people got out of a piece that I wrote that I never expected. And that brings me to today's essay topic, my trip to Spain, which I wouldn't have created in the interim without it. I wrote this essay, this was my first essay that I wrote for the site, and it was when I was conceptualizing what I wanted it to look like, what I wanted it to sound like, what I wanted the messaging and the the sort of thesis to be. Um, so I took a trip to Spain, it was my first time out of the country. It was something that I had saved for and wanted and worked for for months, and it happened to fall right at the point where the coronavirus was becoming a thing. Basically, the coronavirus had moved out of China and it had hit Italy, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't in Europe, so to speak, and it wasn't in America at like at all, as far as I know, or at least not not as we know it now. And yeah, there were a couple days when I was basically quarantining in Spain not knowing exactly how I was going to or when I was going to get back to the United States. And I wasn't alone. I was with my family, um, a member of my family, and it was a whirlwind. It was a whirlwind experience that I can't describe in words right now, but you'll hear them in the essay. And I think that of the things that happened to me and that I did this year, there are so many more things that I didn't do And that's where a lot of us get caught up on when we look back at our year. Like I didn't lose 30 pounds or learn a new language. I didn't, like so many other people, create a business or build my brand, but I did something else. The value of which I cannot describe. I learned to live in the interim. I learned to find peace in the in-between places. I still have so much more to learn, but I'm in no rush. And 2021 does not have to be the year where I find myself or I become self-actualized or all of my dreams blossom into fruition. It is going to be a year of doing the things that I do every day because I love doing them. So I will continue to write. I will continue to move my body. I will continue to love my family and friends as best as I'm capable. And as far as resolutions go, those are mine. So yeah, without further ado, this is my trip to Spain, cordoned by Corona. I met a man named Michael in Lisbon. We stood front to back in a line of at least 300 people waiting to have our passports inspected. Every few minutes we'd jump forward several feet only to come to an abrupt stop again. Michael spoke first. This line, huh? or something jovial and non-threatening like that. Oh, I know. I'd given him a smile because he reminded me of my father, tall with brown skin and a bald head. He'd overheard a woman speaking about her daughter, who attended Yale. I'm from New Haven. Do you know where that is? No, I said. Connecticut. Very rich area. One of the richest in the country. Everyone's got money there. I must have given him a look. Except me, he clarified. I'm poor. Michael had worked for years building pools in people's backyards. He'd even built a few pools in famous people's backyards. I met Tom Cruise once. Oh, really? I was impressed. What was he like? 
Well, I didn't really meet him, he said. He walked by while we were working. He's pretty short, actually. You can't see that in the movies, but he is. Michael had two kids. While he'd saved his entire working life, he planned on giving each a monetary gift upon college graduation, and that was it. I don't want to have a single penny in my bank account when I die. We only have this life. I told him I understood. We spoke about what had brought him to Portugal. He'd never been, but he heard the beaches were amazing. He'd done the Bahamas. Hawaii was better, apparently. He had no friends or family to meet with, and he was excited to take his time exploring. He planned to stay for two weeks and had nothing scheduled yet, not even a ride to his hotel. When I told him I'd booked a horseback riding expedition in Madrid, he said, Be careful. Those things are tall. After about 45 minutes standing in line, his head was dotted with sweat. The backpack he wore was stuffed. Medicine bottles and plastic bags spilled from their front pocket. He shifted his weight from one foot to the other, and I wondered if he was sick. Are you in good health, Michael? Something inside pressed me to ask, but I thought the question might be too invasive. What if he was sick? What if he had cancer? What then? If I couldn't speak to my own father about his sickness, how could I confront the stranger? After an hour and a half, we reached the front of the line. Just before he was directed to his official in a glass box, I thought to say, Goodbye, Michael. It was nice talking to you. But I waited a minute too long, and he was gone. When I approached my official in a glass box, a family was already being attended. He yelled at me to move back, and I did. The father was holding one of two small girls. She stared over his shoulder at me until they were done. The official waved me forward. He was brusque, straightforward, extremely attractive. He gave off an, I don't have time for this vibe, which made me nervous. I slid my passport and ticket through the slat at the bottom of the glass. What is the nature of your visit, he said. Pleasure, I answered. Where have you come from? New York. When do you return? March 17th. He was shooting off questions, rapid fire. I could hardly keep up. Where will you return from? Madrid. His sculpted eyebrow raised. Do you have a plan for the corona? My brain short-circuited. I couldn't pull back the dumb look of confusion on my face. Uh, no, I said. Laughing gaily, the first show of emotion I'd seen from him, he stamped my passport. Good luck, he said, going to Madrid. When I left the U.S. on the 10th of March, there were 200 cases confined to a provincial hotel in the north of Spain. By the time I left on the 19th, there would be close to 20,000. I think you'd be really inspired, he said. It was August then. We were all together in the kitchen, my godbrother, my mother, and I. The earnest light which sometimes makes its way into his gaze was on and shining while he sold us on the city in which he spends half his year. I listened quietly, somewhat removed from even the suggestion of one day going there. Of course Spain would be incredible, of course the opportunity to travel would enliven my spirit, of course, of course. Except there was no way. Then he said, I think you'd write a lot, which, if you know me, and he does, was the exact code to unlock my mind's possibilities. It was 10 o'clock the night before my flight. I performed a cursory Google search about a virus I'd only heard about two days before, and the results were mixed. Italy had closed its borders, but the FCO wasn't advising travelers avoid Spain. Some people were saying, this is the end. Others said, carry hand sanitizer. For a period of six hours, my trip was essentially dead in the water. My bags were packed. My flight was set to take off at 4.44 p.m. the following day. 
I found myself at the end of a long, dark tunnel. There were many voices inside of the tunnel, piling on top of one another. The last thing you want is to be stuck, they said. But the possibility of becoming stuck paled in comparison to the actuality of having been stuck. I'd been living in self-imposed quarantine long before the word became a part of our collective vocabulary. Stifled, depleted, desperate for something I couldn't name, I had been stuck, and here was my chance to break free. There was no way I wasn't going. I called my father just before I left. We hadn't spoken in at least a week. I wanted to let you know I'm leaving. For the airport. So this is how you were going to tell me, he said, as though he hadn't already known, as though my mother hadn't already told him. Perhaps if she hadn't, this would have been the way I'd chosen. I just wanted to let you know I'm leaving, I repeated. Well, where are you planning to stay when you come back? I was quiet for a moment. What do you mean? They're putting people in quarantine. You want to go over there, fine, but you're not bringing that virus back to my house. Daddy, Spain is still at a level two travel advisory. The FCO isn't even telling people not to travel there. It's not like Italy. The travel ban is only for those who've been in China in the last 14 days. Look, look. I'm not exposing myself, or your mama, or your sister. His position felt extreme at the time. Looking back, he'd merely been ahead of the curve. What are you saying, I can't come back, I asked? I'm saying you're not coming back here. You need to find somewhere to stay for 14 days. Okay, I said. All right. I hope you have a good time. I hung up. The city shuts down at midnight tonight. No land or air travel. The U.S. will not accept European travelers beginning Friday. The lockdown will last for at least one month. It was Thursday morning and my first official day in Madrid. I awoke to sunlight streaming through my brother's window. The news of countries closing their borders didn't come until later. ¿Qué tal estás? I asked, once I'd left my dreams behind. Estoy bien, ¿y tú? I held up the okay sign. A full night's worth of sleep after 20 hours of travel had set me up right. I was ready for the day. When I came downstairs for breakfast, he told me the news. My sister called to tell me about President Trump's appearance on television. Her flight attendant friend texted her, saying, I'm sorry, I told you it was okay for her to go. I didn't know this would happen. Inside me, something shrank. I could hurriedly pack my things, find a flight, and leave before midnight. It would be a quick turnaround, to be sure. My time in Spain would consist of the night I'd spent at the Van Gogh Cafe, smoking on the terrace with my brother and his friends, and the morning we all ate breakfast together. I'd made an amiga, a girl named Natalia who seemed too kind to be real, and who I would certainly miss. The journey, my momentary glimpses of the city, and the time I'd spent in the presence of family would have been enough for me to leave with a happy heart. My happy heart and I would then walk directly into the hands of the U.S. government to spend who knows how long in confinement quarantined. At that time, I pictured myself in a stark white facility, standing shoulder to shoulder with thousands of other potentially sick people, or caged, like those kids at the border. I didn't know we'd only be asked a few questions and, if we look suspicious enough, have our temperature taken. On the other hand, I could stay. I could wait out the pandemic in Spain, in the presence of my brother and his teammates, I could live in a foreign country with only a suitcase full of clothes and $700 in my bank account. I could give myself over to the hospitality of his house mother, Charo. I could pray, I could... Could I? Five days. I'd given myself five days in Spain, 
one day down and it was looking like I wouldn't be able to leave. Back then, the quarantine looked as though it might last a month, maybe even two. My mother convinced me to call him. He loves you, she'd said. I believed her. When my father picked up the phone, the first thing he asked was whether I was alright. I'm fine. Everyone here has been so kind, they're taking care of me. I leaned on a ledge, out of the open window. The busy street waited below, the train line beyond, the crisscrossing highways, then the distant mountains. I heard movement behind my back, but didn't turn around. You need to get on the phone with the airline and change your flight as soon as possible, he said. I don't think I can. What do you mean? His fear was making him angry. My airline is a Portuguese company. I don't speak Portuguese. The truth was, I hadn't even called. Well, you need to do something, Angelica. I don't think it's the best idea to travel back right now. I think it's safer to stay put. I think, I think, I think. Plus, I can't come home anyway. You can deal with that once you get here, my father said. But wouldn't you rather be at home? On U.S. soil? What happens if you get sick over there? You think they're going to take care of you? No. They're going to take care of their people first. Daddy, fine. He seemed to give up abruptly. Perhaps he could hear the resolve I was pretending not to have in my voice. You're an adult, you have to make your own decisions. I think it's a dumbass move, but I understand. I laughed. Just like that, the tension was gone. How are you? What do you mean? I mean, I faltered. We hadn't talked about his cancer. Not once. I know you had your appointment and your numbers were... I wasn't even sure how to ask. Look, he said, don't worry about me, okay? Just take care of yourself. He really meant it. Just take care of yourself, all right? All right, I said. A warm breeze brushed against my cheek. I love you. I love you too, darling. When I hung up and turned around, all of the men were in the room. My godbrother, Evan, his two football teammates. Evan was folding clothes. Who was that, he asked. My dad. Oh yeah? How'd that go? Better than expected. On Friday, the president of Spain announced the military would soon be in the streets. Businesses would close. People should not leave their homes except for essentials. By then, the store shelves were barren of body wash, sanitizer, soap, toilet paper. The men rushed to the store to buy groceries. Who knew how long we'd be stuck inside of the house together? Meanwhile, I stayed at home to rest. We'd walked at least 14 miles to a 200-year-old dam between nearby mountains. My toes, which had rubbed together amongst the humid confines of my socks since we left the house at 9.30 that morning, were raw. My legs were stiff as iron beams. After a solo excursion down to a stream midway through, both of my calves had cramped, with the tendons in each pulling taut and twisting my ankles to unnatural angles. I'd spent an hour and a half stuck on a boulder, basking in the sun, dodging ants, waiting for the men to come back from the peak to which they descended. When they did return, we began our two-hour walk back home after a short respite. By the time we reached the trailhead, Evan had called Diego, Charo's son, to pick us up from the bus stop in his car. God bless him. Naturally, my horseback riding session was cancelled. I wasn't looking forward to hobbling my way to Sevilla anyway. Saturday morning came and I lamented not having an SD card for my camera. If the military were to march through the streets, wouldn't it be a shame not to have footage? 
Mason, my brother's teammate, had said the first night, we'll remember this for the rest of our lives. We'll tell our grandkids about this. But if my grandkids are anything like me, and chances are they will be even worse, they'd rather see about the end of the status quo than hear about it. Mason had also been the one to say, this is like something out of a movie. We all stood at attention, rapt, waiting to see how this movie would end. Buses, empty of passengers, drove by every 15 minutes. The city still had to run, I suppose, even if no one was going anywhere. From the upstairs window, I'd watched the same green bus go by again and again. The strange sight encapsulated the feeling of quarantine perfectly. Everyone in the house lived the same day on repeat. Thus, we had to find routines which suited us. Our routines, confined as we were, were our lifeblood. Mine was simple. While barren to some, I'd say my daily dance was rather spacious. Waking up came earlier than usual, but never with a demand. Once I'd made my bed, I took my time getting dressed in the bathroom. After dressing, I would descend the stairs to the kitchen. If it was early, maybe only Charo would be up, or Diego. If it was later, then all the men were awake and eating. A cup of espresso with soy milk and a single sugar cube, which fizzed when dropped in, as well as a glass of water, would come with me into the living room for my morning Spanish lesson. One hour, approximately, every morning. I would take notes and practice speaking while Charo made work calls at the dining room table. Evan liked to sit in the chair beside mine and say, Mm-hmm, exactly. You sound good. Whenever I said anything in Spanish, which, to be sure, helped with my morale. After studying came an hour of reading. I'd sit in the brown suede chair and read Mary and Khalil's letters to one another. Often, the sun would find my skin through the window and keep me warm. Other days, like the first Monday, Winter rains kept the sun away. Then, only Mary and Khalil's love kept me warm. Lots of things were dictated by the sun. If the weather was good, around noon, the men would go into the backyard to exercise, to run around the pool and up the stairs, to lift weights, to scream encouragement at one another. I would take this time to write. Upstairs, even through the terrace door, I could hear their yelling the sound of energy exiting their bodies and escaping into the blue sky. My tentative writing usually gave way to more reading, this time Sylvia Plath's unabridged journals. Mary and Khalil were only for the morning. Plath's unfettered, eloquent observations would inevitably inspire my envy, which led to more writing, a bit more confident this time. Sometimes I would forgo writing to work on plans for the website, the very website on which you are now reading this. At that point, in the interim was nothing more than an idea and a domain name. I drew the logo in my notebook and sent pictures to my sister. I tweeted updates and sly observations about my life under quarantine. I answered emails if the Wi-Fi was good, which it never was. There was plenty to do, and yet I never felt as though I were getting anything done. Again, the bus with no passengers. It still makes its stops, of course, but ultimately... No one is going anywhere. If the weather was bad, which is to say, when Spain remembered March is still technically winter time, the men stayed inside. Lunch would stretch from noon to almost three. We'd sit, all of us, in the kitchen, watching the news and finding more and more things to eat, speaking to and past each other in both English and Spanish. In a house full of men, Charo and I found a measure of comfort in one another. 
Neither of us were interested in which set of exercises provided the most burn, nor in playing video games, nor in how many likes we stood to garner on our latest Instagram post. And only she would understand my need to visit the nearest shopping center for curly hair products before my straight hair saw its last good day. She made a habit of making fun of the men, boys to her, and she always caught my eye afterward and smiled, as though to say, you are on my side. She would often forget I wasn't fluent in Spanish and go off on a hilarious tangent. Mid-laugh, she would realize and go, oh, oh, hold up a single finger, espera, then pull out her phone and use an app to translate. She lent me her clothes before I even ran out of my own, and on the way to El Campo, the shopping center, with only the two of us in her car, she said, what is better to say? Pretty? Bonito? Beautiful? Guapa? I pointed out at the rain-drenched landscape outside the window, or I pointed back at myself. You, Charo said, pretty or beautiful? She was asking which word was better. I wasn't sure how to answer. Uh, pretty, I said, though I immediately wished I'd said beautiful. Charo nodded. I smiled, the compliment finally sinking in. Gracias, Charo. Gracias, I said. De nada, Angelica. It's nothing. I had no idea she and Diego had argued while I was getting dressed upstairs. He said she shouldn't take me with her. She could be fined if the police found out we were together. She said, in essence, how am I supposed to pick out products for her hair? My dreams? For the most part, I don't remember. I only know they were full of twilight. I was closest to the window. The doors to the terrace were only half covered by blinds, and the uncovered half streamed moonlight squarely onto my bed. I bathed in moonlight. Throughout the night, I would briefly touch consciousness with my fingertips. Like a turtle's head peeking above the surface of an otherwise still pond, I would come up for air. With each peek out, I'm sure the light snuck in. Perhaps a few mornings, I wondered where I was, in space. With my eyes closed, I might as well have been in my bed back home. I never thought it strange when I came to find myself in Spain. I never thought, my goodness, where am I and what am I doing here? Perhaps that's because of my sneaky peaks throughout the night. A momentary glance in between sleep cycles. I must have been reaffirming to myself, you are here, so that by the time morning came, I could not be surprised. There was one dream which lingered beyond sleep. In this dream, I walked hand in hand with my father. My sister walked along his other side and held his other hand. We searched, all three of us, for my nephew, who had run away. When we came upon a wooden shack, my father paid $1,700 to the young girl who sat inside. She placed his money into a large jar and handed him a thick stack of papers. I looked up, and behind her, there was a sign. $1,700 for last will and testament. I woke up then and began to cry. The days were hard to decipher, since they all went the same. I found myself looking for particulars to help me differentiate. Thursday, first full day in the house. Friday, we ate pizza. Saturday, Julio stopped by. We smoked and watched clips of Cat Williams and Steve Harvey on the terrace. Sunday, Charo made sangria. The president of Spain announced anyone caught leaving their home for anything other than the doctor, the pharmacy, the grocery store, and the hairdresser, oddly enough, could be fined up to 1,000 euros. And these trips had to be made alone. 
no company. One night, I can't remember which, Chato succeeded in convincing the men to have their nails painted. She did most of the work. I took the photos afterwards. Monday would have been the day I went home if my flight from Lisbon to the United States hadn't been canceled. When I spoke to my mother on the phone, she told me of the incredible lines congregating in the U.S. international airports. 40,000 people lined up front to back, waiting to be tested. Or not tested. That particular bit was unclear. I woke up later than normal to find clouds covering the sky. The temperature had dropped to 40 degrees. My laptop was dead and refused to charge. For the first time, I knew 30 days in Spain would not be easy nor idyllic. I realized I would soon run out of lotion and toothpaste. My flat iron had shorted. I wasn't drinking nearly enough water. Evan gave me his computer to write on, and I passed the hours in bed, writing beneath the covers. The news we were going home didn't come as a shock to anyone. It was midday, Tuesday. The men were gathered around the dining room table. I sat in what had become my brown chair and listened as the president of their football team expressed his most heartfelt apologies. Better to leave now, he said, while you can. Every other sports league had closed down or postponed. This ending was the only one which made any sense. A solemn pensiveness, the kind preceding Solare, descended over the group. Their season of play was over. So too was the season they spent in Spain, together. They had come to the end quicker than any of them could have predicted. About this time, I realized a few things. One, Charo might have been my other half. Two, nothing could be predicted. And three, I had never been stuck. Never. Not for one minute. Every single thing which had ever happened to me, I had chosen. This realization expanded. It widened until I felt a chasm open up inside my chest and cold air blow through. You have never been stuck in your life, said a voice on the wind coming through the window. The voice blew straight into me, and in a chasm so wide, the echoes echoed. I saw with clarity, as I had that day, on top of the dam, when I'd been higher than even the birds flying, how I had chosen to live apart from myself, how I had chosen a life which kept me trapped, one step removed from the hard fact of my existence, and thus one step removed from the fact of its sweetness as well. I had written off dreams, procrastinated desires, cut off entire avenues for future exploration. I had done all this with a deadened kind of pleasure, like cutting off the tips of my hair and thought myself lighter without them. Perhaps I was. Still, I could not see how unfortunate that was, how dreams were meant to anchor you, how desires grind your flesh into the earth, how those avenues inside of you could become backed up for miles and miles and miles. Almost two years post-college and my hopes, like little lights, floated farther into the distance, across the night pond, into the perpetual fog. Lost? No, but faint. How much brighter they would be if I could only see them up close. How could I reach them? by following the relentlessness which I had always suppressed, by choosing to live for something and in doing so, die by its opposite. By love, by letting myself be lost to nothing, then gathering myself only to be lost to nothing again. There was no answer, but I felt answered and I knew the feeling was greater than the fact. I could choose to live and to believe in everything 
or I could choose the other way. The other way was a room with no windows. The other way was moot. Wednesday was the last day. I laid in bed, awake, staring out the window. There were train tracks just across the street. Every so often, the dull sound of the rotary would overwhelm the quiet morning. From my makeshift, twin-sized bed, parallel and pushed up against his, I glanced around Evan's room. At the case full of Spanish books I wasn't yet able to read, at his desk, cluttered with our things, at the yellow walls and the white radiator, at the little boy's pants with the BMW patch framed on the wall. Everything was bright and cold and I knew I would never be there again. I was done packing in less than an hour. Trenton came upstairs with a platter of rolled crab meat Charo made. Evan laid his shirts, his numerous shirts, on the bed and wondered how he was going to fit everything in his suitcase. I had already left half of mine empty for him. Diego came to say his mother made lunch. When we walked in, the table was set. Plates and wine glasses, spinach salad, an entire loaf of bread, three full Spanish tortillas, which are not flat, flour-based wraps, but rather puffy egg-onion-potato pancakes. Water, red wine, and after an hour or so, espresso. Then Chato pulled out the vodka, Mary and Jane, laced with THC. After two shots of vodka, she brought out the much milder sidra. The clink of our glasses, again and again, to God, to Charo, to football. Evan got a look in his eye. Should I bring down the jar? I nodded, allowing the look to come to my eye as well. We smoked, we listened to music, we danced, we sang. We sat around the table for hours, basking in the end. An afternoon in Spain was all I could think. I would not forget a thing. We left Las Matas at 5.30 Thursday morning. The team had been kind enough to pay for my ticket home. Charo drove us to the airport like a woman who didn't want her children to leave and would happily veer off of the highway if it meant they could stay. I made sure to hug her long and hard and to look her in her eyes before I left. Te quiero, I said. It had taken me too many days to learn. The first time I tried to express the sentiment, she had just pulled out a slip of paper, a warning she would paste on her jar of edibles, then empty, which explained the process of making brownies. Yo quiero. Tú? I said, staring at her in awe. She nodded and laughed. You want to? She repeated, and I knew she did not understand. The verb querer can mean to love, but it can also mean to want. I had not always loved what I wanted. I had not always wanted what I loved. This is the predicament of anyone who lives away from themselves. But right then, boarding one of the last flights to the US before Spain closed its borders for good, I knew I wanted to live the full measure of my life because I loved my life. And further, I loved people. Truly, people, for all their foibles and idiosyncrasies, were on the whole, incredibly kind, selfless, generous. They sang even when they were sad. They drove you to the shopping mall even when they could be fined. They paid for your ticket home when your flight was canceled. Soon, all over the world, people would be delivering food and making masks and cheering from balconies. Soon, all over the world, people would be sitting at home, bored, but doing their best to keep others safe. Soon, too, there would be people donning mesh masks and protesting their inability to have someone else cut their hair, but no one knew what was going to happen then. How long this would last, how bad things would become, how many people 
would die. They only knew they had to continue doing their best. I came home from quarantine in Spain to quarantine in the US. Life was strange in its normalcy. Europe was ahead by at least two weeks, which meant during my quarantine, I watched the country I'd returned to begin to resemble the country I'd only just left. During those two weeks, I wondered what happened to Michael, whether he'd stayed in Lisbon the entire time or flew back to New Haven in a matter of days, whether he was in good health. I should have asked. Quarantine in a foreign country taught me, you always ask, because you don't know when or if you'll see someone again. It's been nine months. I leave the house to go to the grocery store. I wear my mask. When the vaccine is available, I'll roll up my sleeve because I have two immunocompromised parents and I understand how this beast of a virus works now. But even though I spend 90% of my life in the same room, I'm not stuck anymore. I've learned how to live with myself, truly. And Evan was right. I've written a lot. So that was the fourth episode of In the Interim and the last episode for 2020. I want to thank you for listening. If you have been here since the beginning of this journey and the creation of this site, um, then you have seen a miracle. I'll put it that way. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your life to listen to my truth. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. I wish all of you joy and peace in the new year. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify. You can also subscribe to the newsletter at intotheinterim.com. Follow us on Instagram at intheinterimblog or on Twitter at ITinterry. As always, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.